Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. My new book, Diary of a Psychosis, is out. It's the most lively, devastating baseball bat to the throat takedown of what the public health establishment did in 2020 and beyond that you can imagine. It's my first book in nine years, and you're going to love it. Check it out at diaryofcovid.com. And if you've already bought it, make sure also to visit diaryofcovid.com so you can claim your free bonuses, including my free companion volume, Collateral Damage, a collection of stories from real people who suffered under the restrictions. They weren't allowed to tell their stories at the time, but every one of them told me, we just want to be heard. Check it all out at diaryofcovid.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Tom Woods Show, episode 2445. I'm so glad to be joined once again by Steve Patterson, who has not been on the program since we added this video element. For those of you who inexplicably want to see my head and that of my guest, we have Steve back here. Steve is an author and an independent researcher who is on the verge of starting a new institute, a, a research institute. And you may think, Steve, before I even allow you to say hello, when you hear something like that, you may think, ah, you know, we, we got all the institutes we need. No, we don't. We are missing at least one. And when you hear this episode, you're going to understand how much we need what Steve Patterson is about to do. And as I've said before, Steve, I was a Steve Patterson skeptic for a while. And boy, did I learn my lesson on that. So I'm, I'm very much a booster now. So welcome back, Steve. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be with you. I appreciate the introduction. And look, I would agree with the sympathy that people might have that we have too many institutes. And in my mind, so I worked in the nonprofit world for a little bit. I think we have too many nonprofit institutes. And I think there's all kinds of bad incentives which are creating bad research from different institutes. So I'm very sympathetic to this idea. But I think there's maybe a new way we can go about building alternative institutions here in the future. And I think some of the, now we'll leave aside certain exceptions, but the problem is that the existing institutions, it's not like we just need 10 more of them or 50 yeah. more of them. It's that the whole existing approach to the acquisition of knowledge is off. Yes. And so yes. just simply multiplying the number of people and institutions doing this is not going to get us where we need to be. Agreed. And think about this point, right? The internet has revolutionized pretty much every industry at this point. It's made it radically more efficient in many ways. And yet, for some reason, people think like it wouldn't totally revolutionize the production and distribution of knowledge at a professional level. I mean, academia has not really updated with the internet. I mean, granted, there are Zoom classes in there, but I think we're going to see a complete restructuring of the industry of ideas. Of course we would. The internet is this amazing technology. It's kind of weird that academia has sort of lagged behind in terms of not updating to use this awesome new technology. I want to make clear to everybody what it is we're going to be talking about today. You've heard me say in the past few months and beyond that in the past, I might have thought that there's something unique about, let's say, economics that seems to lend itself to all kinds of faulty ideas taking root or history. Sometimes you see there's an ideological bent to it. or And so I would think that I was running into problems that were unique to the fields I was familiar with. But then, especially as you get to know more people and the internet makes possible encounters with disciplines you might not have become familiar with, you realize that other people 
other independent-minded thinkers are reporting the same types of phenomena in their disciplines. And so this is not some localized problem. Well, economics has problems, but sociology is great. But also, even in the hard sciences, there's nothing wrong with medicine, but there's something wrong with philosophy. There's a sickness that is generating results that are... I don't even want to, it's not even that they're inaccurate. It's not like the answer was 10 and they're getting 11. (laughs) It's that the answer is 10 and they're getting rocket ship, (laughs) you know? So we want to talk today about what's happened that we've got this rot in one discipline after another and we can't, not only can we not seem to uproot it, we can't even seem to get people to admit that the rot exists, but yet a good, curious, reasonably intelligent layman can see the rot. And it's everywhere. Before we go into that specific thing, there's one thing that's sort of a bee in my bonnet here from your an article of yours that I just read that I'll link in the description and at tomwoods.com slash 2445. And there's one thing I want to pick your brain about before we get into the big thing. And okay. you were saying something in there in passing, the relationship between the internet and conformity. And so I really do think the internet has turned out to be a double-edged sword. It's not that I don't want to have it. I couldn't live without it, Steve. I couldn't make a living. I, could, no. I have no practical skills. I need this thing. <laughs> but what I have noticed is that my initial thought of where this would take us has turned out to be incorrect, that I thought all these independent voices could now have a platform. Now, they do, right. but I thought more people would find them. But instead, what seems to have happened is because now one tweet or one blog post or whatever can reach the whole world, the whole world has become, I think, more tribalistic. That There's no reason, for example, that your opinion on the COVID lockdowns should have an ideological component. I mean, lefties in Sweden were against lockdowns, so there's no reason. But if you see online that all your favorite celebrities and everybody, you know, all these sorts of people think a certain way, then you're just going to suddenly think that way. And so it's, in some ways, it's inhibited independent thought. In some ways, this is a very fascinating topic. I would say in other ways, though, what you and I would like to see is that the good guys have their message amplified and that people can recognize, hey, listen to this dissident. He's making a really good point. But I would not want to take for granted the fact that the dissidents do have platforms and some of them have fairly considerable audiences. Yeah. So I think what you might be hitting on is that it would be nice if we lived in a world in which there were more independent minds generally and more independent minds able to recognize other independent minds. Yeah. But instead, it turns out that there really aren't too many independent minds, and people are very focused in ideological conformity. I don't think the internet has made that better or worse, per se. I think it's just revealed what the ratios are, if you will. It could be, but I think that because now, in effect, everybody has a global platform to say, hey, look at me, I think there is a greater urge to give the appearance of being on the right team. Like everybody has to have a certain emoji. We didn't have emojis before. Yeah. So everybody has to indicate. I mean, I remember all the way back at the time of the first of the Persian Gulf War of 1991. One of the things that people did to indicate they were on board for that was they would tie a yellow ribbon on something. So the yellow ribbon was like the emoji of today. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't that. I mean, so I feel like the perceived need to show these outward signs that don't worry, I'm not on the team of the crazy people, I'm on the popular kids team, I think has multiplied. I think that's a very valid observation. Let me put one potential hypothesis out there is it could be that what we're seeing is social dynamics at play near the end of an empire. 
Okay, so it's tempting to universalize and say, hey, maybe the internet has revealed some flaws in the human psyche, or maybe the internet has pushed us into a new cultural window. But it's also the case that we might be, our American culture might be breaking down in a unique way, where if this were happening without the internet, you might see a lot more yellow ribbons out there mm. anyway. Yeah. But because we're seeing general decay, that's just, we're missing cause and effect here. I actually feel like this is the case going on generally when people are deeply pessimistic about humanity. I'm thinking, okay, well, let's not prematurely universalize your experience. You know, you're somebody that came from New York City or Los Angeles and you see social decay everywhere. Let's not speak too quickly and say like the entire world is falling apart. There's a lot of places outside of your local area that might be decaying, you know? And I do want to clarify that I am delighted at how many people who did not have a voice before now have ever louder voices. And that, and that is an absolute net plus without a doubt. So I'd like to have you, I just, I read your article, Our Present Dark Age, part one. And I'd like to have you give a more leisurely overview of what the problem is, because I sure. gave like a podcast host's tantalizing kind of overview. But can you describe what exactly is it that we're facing in terms of the state of human knowledge in various disciplines? Okay, bunch of ways to answer that question. Let me use an analogy that people might be familiar with. Have you heard of this term, Gelman amnesia? Are you familiar with that? No, but I'm sure I'd like to know about it. Okay, so it's this idea that you can imagine some expert in, let's say, foreign policy reading, let's say, the Washington Post. And he's reading through and he reads an article that is talking about something that's happening in the Middle East. And this individual happens to have a lot of specialized knowledge about the details of what's happening in the Middle East. But he reads the Washington Post article and he goes, this is garbage. Like, this is completely wrong. The conclusion is backwards. The names are wrong. The dates are wrong. It's like this absolutely terrible piece of journalism. And he goes, wow, isn't that shocking? And then he turns the page and he reads about something that's happening in Japan. And he assumes that everything he reads about Japan is just true. He just seems to forget he's gotten amnesia that the quality of writing about the thing he had knowledge about was really low, and he just assumes it's high quality when you're talking about Japan. So this is called Gelman amnesia. It's kind of a famous concept. My claim is that the exact same thing is happening throughout academia and has been for a long time, that people who gain specialized knowledge will, like you were just describing earlier, will realize, oh man, maybe people are wrong about this essential concept. Maybe... People are wrong about their interpretations of what happened in the Great Depression. And maybe the scholarship around the Great Depression was really shoddy. And then they think this is an anomaly. This is some siloed scandal. And they don't see, because they haven't put the time in, that this is the norm across disciplines. So what we're seeing right now, I think because of the internet, is more and more people realizing, okay, there is shoddy knowledge in epidemiology and there's shoddy knowledge even in biology and in economics and in physics and, dare I say, I won't go into it, in higher mathematics. That's the one that everybody cringes at, but it's there too. That there were institutional reasons for this and social and psychological reasons for this. So I'm saying that in the big picture, academia has failed and I'm trying to play the story out of when it failed and why it failed. And the narrative I am coming to is that the 20th century generally was filled to the brim with really bad ideas that were articulated poorly, that paradigms were established not due to their intellectual merit, but because of you know, political and social reasons. And 
it just is the case that once a paradigm is established, it's incredibly hard to clean it up over time. And so when you look at the modern paradigms that we live under across domains, most of them were established in a time period, I say, between 1880 and about 1950. This was a time period where you had a bunch of revolutions, not just in the world, you had like, political revolutions, economic revolutions, you had electrification, for example. It was also a bunch of revolutions that were happening in the world of ideas, stretching from math to physics, to economics and psychology, to medicine. A bunch of our modern paradigms were established in this time frame. And, in my opinion, those paradigms aren't very good. Most of them have very big flaws that were even pointed out back then. It just turns out that for historical and political reasons, the skepticism, the good skeptical arguments that were made criticizing the ideas, let's say, in the Copenhagen interpretation in physics in the 1920s, those skeptical arguments didn't win out. Again, not due to their intellectual quality, but just due to social dynamics. So sort of in the big picture, the way I put it is, I think we're in the middle of a dark age. In my opinion, I am an optimist. I think we're coming out of the dark age. I think a lot of people are realizing this. And so what I'm trying to do is kind of take stock and say, okay, what are the ideas, big and small, which we need to carefully re-examine? What are these treasured ideas that we believe, that we believe there's a consensus of experts about? What are the ones that are good? What are the ones that are bad? And unfortunately, the more I research, the longer the list gets. <laughs> like right now, I have a list that has more than 100 entries in it. I think each one of these topics really does need to be re-examined in detail at some point by somebody or some institution. So kind of coming full circle to what I'm doing with this new research institute, it's called the Natural Philosophy Institute. And the reason that I'm in the process of making it right now is because I realized I only have so much time and I only have so much interest that will drive me deep enough down rabbit holes where like I'm really interested in the philosophy of mathematics. That's one of those things I'm willing to go very deep down the rabbit hole. But I don't, it's impossible for me to go down all the rabbit holes that need to be gone down to see the big picture and get us out of the circumstance that we're in. So I figured what I need to do is try to make a research institute to help bring other people in, to try to coordinate other researchers, either because I can pay them, I'm not there yet, before that, maybe I can bring other independent minds that are out there on the internet and we can coordinate on which rabbit holes to go down and we can have a very careful skeptical eye in looking over a bunch of topics and then having, if you will, something like a heterodox Wikipedia, let's say, which is saying, okay, here are the... We're not just going to make a one-off Facebook post about, hey, look, this idea is wrong. That's, that'll be lost forever. We're going to say in a methodological way, here is a bunch of, you know, here's a long list of really important topics that we've gone through and we vetted. And here is the evidence in favor and against what the orthodoxy has been for the last century or so. So that's what I'm trying to do with that FI. And that's the big picture for you, Tom. All right. Well, obviously we want to promote this institute. We'll do that throughout and certainly at the end. I hate to bring up such a when you have, I'm sure, very, very interesting and unusual examples in your list of 100 or so, and I'm sorry, mine is so pedestrian, <laughs> but it is something that I thought and wrote about for several years. So I think about somebody like Mandy Cohen. She's the director of the CDC. And it's as if she lives in a universe parallel to ours, but not quite in ours, because she never intersects with anybody we know about or talk to. 
She goes on NPR all the time to tell people about the need for the next booster. She never interacts with any dissident voice whatsoever. She never acknowledges the existence of any dissident voice whatsoever. But every time she posts something on Twitter about her latest appearance within her own bubble, there is an enormous array of comments of people chipping away at the foundation on which she rests. And it seems like that can't just go on indefinitely because that foundation eventually is going to disappear and she'll come crashing down. But that is the bizarre situation we're in where there are very, very, very solid arguments against a lot of what she believes and a lot of what she advocates as public policy. And she thinks she can just go throughout her career acting as if they're not there. And, you know, if I may correct a bit of my extremism on the internet from earlier, before the internet, she absolutely could have lived her career that way. Yes. But now it's becoming increasingly difficult because now not only do you have all these intelligent laymen chipping away, but the intelligent laymen, the critical mass of them, has now given courage to some credentialed people who now feel like, well, look, I've got tenure. What have I got to lose? I'm going to come out here and join these people. Okay, but Tom, so I completely agree with everything you just said. If it's true that prior to the internet, this lady could have gone on and had a successful, prestigious career without being corrected, what if that's the world we actually lived in prior to the internet? So imagine all of those paradigms that were established by great prestigious minds over the past century simply weren't corrected because we didn't have the tools to correct them. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So that is, that's the thing. I mean, yeah, right. I think that is the scales fall from the eyes when you realize that, that, yeah. oh my gosh, what world were we living in when basically everybody was Mandy Cohen, all these sorts <laughs> yes. of people we were talking yes. about. It's not to say that there were no smart people in right. positions of prominence. You know, we're not right. saying that, but we are saying that at the very least, a healthy dose of skepticism is warranted. Now, I do want to get into, in a short while, some specific examples of what we're talking about because people yeah. are going to want to know. I mean, you gave the example of economics and, for example, what we think we know about the Great Depression. There are reasons to want to keep an eye on the historical record because people use the Great Depression as justification for bad monetary policy today. Or people will use the 2008 financial crisis or right. the New Deal or whatever. If you misunderstand what happened, you're going to keep recommending dumb things and using history as your guide. But so I, I do want to get into some more examples. But I, I'm at the moment more interested in how it's possible that we could have gone so wrong when the Enlightenment promised us that with the application of reason and by getting rid of all the layers of superstition under which we labored would get us closer and closer to the truth and yet, the result is, to put it mildly, disappointing. So yeah. what are some of the explanations for this? Well, that is that's above my pay grade. That's a huge question. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely above my pay grade. I can give a couple of thoughts that pop in my mind. One is, so I, I talk about this in the article you, you mentioned before, Our Present Dark Age. Intellectuals going through to the Enlightenment have profoundly underestimated the complexity of the world. Okay, profoundly underestimated complexity of the world. As in, in recent history, people did not believe that microbes existed because they couldn't see them because they didn't have microscopes. There was a theory called the theory of animalcules, like a molecule, there was an animalcule, that there was these microscopic organisms that up until the past 150 years was laughed out of existence because you couldn't see these 
entities because they didn't have the tools to do so. And then once we get the tools, we go, oh, wow, not only do these entities exist, they're incredibly complex little creatures. And you zoom in a little bit more and you discover, oh, man, they're not just complex creatures. Every aspect of them is composed of multiple systems that we don't understand because they're so breathtakingly complex. So I think part of what's happened is that this naive, let's say the naive enlightenment notion that we just use reason and then we discover the truth and then we know the truth and we discard all the old ideas, that doesn't work because it turns out to be way harder <laughs> to arrive at the truth than we previously realized. Like you need sophisticated thinking, you need sophisticated technology to even attempt to grasp at the nature of reality. So I also think there's something chronologically that was happening during the progressive era, which lent itself to this, this early 20th century idea that we were going to have the experts that were going to structure society for us, the wise people like Woodrow Wilson, who have all the credentials and the knowledge, they're going to build society out for us because they're so smart. We're going to have an epistocracy. Part of the reason that doesn't work is simply because of the complexity problem. It's too hard. It's too hard to, to know complex truths. Maybe you can understand some very abstract truths, but when you start zooming in, the world just is just too damn complex to plan out and structure. So I think that's part of the picture is just due to the complexity problem. The other part of the picture, though, is due to the power of ideas. It turns out that ideas are very powerful and influential, and especially as they intersect with politics, right? We want to. We give, it is natural, a natural psychological urge to give power and authority to people who we perceive as being knowledgeable about things. So when you have that dynamic, it's, it's also kind of a sinister incentive for powerful people to pretend like we now know that the old dogmas were wrong and the new dogmas are true. And then they give power to themselves. They, you know, they game the system which makes them the establishment. They start persecuting dissidents and heretics. And I think with that, the kind of theoretical or the game theoretical structure of the power of ideas, you're going to end up over time with really bad ideas being entrenched from on high. That's how you get people like Anthony Fauci with significant social influence who's not only got a bunch of bad ideas, but probably has, you know, bad, appears to have bad moral character as well over time. So that's an, that's an attempt to explain or answer your question. Well, there is some discussion too, you know, about funding sources. And you've talked about this. Of course. Yeah. Whether it's government or corporate. I had, maybe you're familiar with Terrence Keeley. I'm not yet. Oh, okay. Well, I'm actually going to send you an episode of mine. It's actually episode 2400, I believe. TomWoods.com says 2400. He's written an outstanding book you would love called The Economic Laws of Scientific Research. And it is, as I've said, it's one of these books that every page you learn something. Yeah. And his argument is that he's making the kind of libertarian argument that most libertarians, no strike at libertarians, just don't have the knowledge to defend, which is that government funding of science absolutely needs to be reduced to zero. Yeah. And that yeah. it does only bad. And that it's not necessary that places with basically no government funding of science have outperformed. And it is an astonishing accomplishment, that book. Astonishing. But yeah. he also wrote a book, when I had him on to talk about it, he also wrote a book called Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal. And he said, 
<laughs> We've all been told that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. He says, now, nobody has to propagandize you that lunch is the most important meal or dinner is the most important meal because you're hungry at lunch or dinner. But this is supposed to badger you when you're not hungry, that you're supposed to eat. And his thesis, his, he's arguing, it's not good. Don't eat when you're not hungry. And he talks about the some of the biochemistry involved in eating in the first thing in the morning. So it's a really interesting thing. But he said, I went through a thousand papers yes. arguing that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And what's interesting is so many of them are funded by like General Mills. <laughs> I mean, it is almost, it's like a cartoon. Yeah. It's like a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> you, the cereal companies are, are funding the research. Oh, yes. And he says very rarely in these thousand papers, he said, I would say only one paper was an outright lie. The other 999 papers simply selected the data. And that was the data that supported this thesis. Yes. And what happens is when you have a paradigmatic paper that's published and people start citing it, suddenly, this is a weird social process, but it no longer becomes acceptable to double check whether that seminal paper was true or not. There's unlimited examples of this. I can think on the topic of health. There's a paper called the Seven Countries Study by Ansel Keys, which has established the lipid hypothesis. The idea of, it depends on how you want to phrase the lipid hypothesis, but let's say the connection between dietary saturated fat intake and heart disease. This is something we all know. This is why Cheerios are good for you, right? This is where we get the idea of the low-fat diet is good for heart health. Okay, this was not a good paper. This paper has been dissected and annihilated in 15 different ways. Some people have claimed, not that it's fraudulent, but that it's cherry-picked. There's some evidence of that. But there's a whole bunch of other methodological problems with this paper. <laughs> but that doesn't matter, because once this was established, this was no longer an idea that could be questioned. In fact, I just read the other day a paper I had not come across. It was a scientific article, a commentary of some sort, from the mid-'80s, and it had a line in there where it said something like, it's no longer a question. It's beyond doubt that there is this connection between dietary fat intake and heart disease. The only question is of magnitude. I think this was in the mid-80s. This was like 10, less than 10 years after this Ansel Keys study was published. And, and I'm thinking, okay, this sounds a lot like we're all Keynesians now. Don't, <laughs> don't re-examine the fundamentals of the Keynesian way of thinking about the world. But in the case of you know, nutrition and dietary science, this happens all the time. Yeah, fat's bad for you. You should substitute your saturated fats for unsaturated fats. You just go through the list. And these are the paradigms we live under, the paradigm of the medical and the academic establishment. But the actual fundamental research just isn't good. And there's almost nobody who is, I'd say, that's, oh, there's almost nobody from the establishment who is challenging those foundations. And when they do, when they do get challenged, it takes at least 30 years. Okay, yeah. I can give you a bunch of examples of where you have the paradigm that's established. You say, we know, now we're going to recommend you know, each Cheerios and have good health. And then maybe 30, at least 30 years down the road, then it can be a little bit more acceptable to re-examine some of those fundamental assumptions. Right, right. The problem is that, or one of the problems, is that if you are a dissident voice, you can't rely on there being financial support out there for what you're yes. doing. Social support, because society frowns on you for not, you know, getting with the science, because we all know the science yeah. is what these other people say, not what you're That's saying. Right. So it takes an unusually courageous person. And normally, if you're in one of these fields, that means you've worked for many years to acquire your credentials. 
You put in your time. Now you want to enjoy your prestige that comes from that. Right. And you're going to take that away from yourself right. by dissenting from the paradigm. Yes. And prior to the internet, not only will you take prestige away, you may take your job away. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Hey, everybody. Quick message from Old Woods here. If you're watching me on video, look what I have in my hand. See? Look. See this? This is my 16-page print newsletter, the Tom Woods Elite Letter that I mail in the physical mail to people who support The Tom Woods Show. That's one of the 800 zillion benefits you get as a supporter of The Tom Woods Show. And it's 100 octane woods. Now, don't write to me and say, well, that's actually not the correct usage of octane. Shut up. You know what I mean. It's full of hot, great, fantastic content. All original, nothing like my amazing email list. All fresh new stuff that you've never read before coming in the mail to you every single month isn't it nice every once in a while to read something not on a godforsaken screen? And is there any other content creator out there sending you a physical newsletter in the mail? I think the question more or less answers itself. But as a member of the Tom Woods Supporting Listeners Program, you also get invites to my Christmas party every year and also to my murder mystery dinner parties that I hold all over the United States. Everybody else has to pay hundreds of dollars to attend those. But not you, smart supporter. You get in for free. Not to mention you get to join the Tom Woods Show Elite, where you can talk in my no-censorship group to other normal people. Plus, you get transcripts of all the interviews I do and so many other goodies, you're going to feel like a kid in a candy store. So how do you get all these goodies, including, look at this thing. Look at this thing. Look at, look, 16, look at this thing, all right? You get that every single month in your mailbox. How do you get all this stuff? Supportinglisteners.com. You've been thinking, maybe I should do that, right? Today's the day. I am the voice of that angel, the good, you know, the, the good one that's telling you to do good things. That's me right now. So head over to supportinglisteners.com. Be a part of the greatest community in the world. Get more goodies than anybody's given you in the world, as well as my profound thanks. So you've mentioned before the nefarious influence of General Mills, which I think is funny. And that comes up, he was an interesting character, actually, this Kellogg's guy. He had a bunch of weird ideas. I know there's a conspiracy behind cornflakes. Oh, yes, we are aware of them on the Tom Woods show. Yes. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. <Yeah. laughs> but also, so, for example, here's a less heartwarming case when you're talking about heart disease and cholesterol and statins. Okay, statins are a $15 billion a year industry. Statins, the idea of statins is that you are going to lower your cholesterol by taking these medications, and that'll be good for your, the health of your heart, your cardiovascular system. Okay, there is considerable research now even coming from the academy saying statins not only don't seem to help your heart health, they also have side effects, and they might be net negative for your health. Don't list, don't, I'm not a medical doctor. All the disclaimers, okay, don't stop taking your statins. What I'm saying is there is a lot of very disturbing research about the ineffectiveness of statins and they're potentially being counterproductive. And there is a $15 billion a year industry that is predicated on specific research. So do you really think you, humble person on the internet, do you realize the Goliath that you're fighting? You can go out there and you can do the research and you can say the thing, but you have these people which have way more resources than you, all of which is predicated on the defense of a particular concept. 
So that's an enormous asymmetry that I think libertarians also kind of fall prey to. We, we tend to have this naive version idea of the market and you know the market corruption and there's so much political corruption and that's why there's a bunch of bad research out there because we trace accurately trace a bunch of funding to government funding and we see it's bad. But realistically, even if you didn't have the government involved, you're going to get these power asymmetries that are going to come up anyway, right? You're going to get pharmaceutical companies that have lots of money that do have perverse incentives to put out bad research and try to persuade medical professionals of their bad research. And, you know, government makes it worse for sure, but I do think this is a deeper problem than that. Well, it kind of recalls the public choice issue that they have an interest 24 hours a day in pushing yes. their particular point of view because their entire livelihoods depend on it. Whereas you, as a hobbyist, you would like to see your point of view take root, but it's not going to mean the difference between life and death, career or no career right. for you. So there is an asymmetry there too. I think there is an unjustified extrapolation that most of the public makes that is blinding them to what's really happening. They look around and they say, look at technology, the advance mm, of yes. technology, the internet, cell phones, commercial air travel, automobiles, things like that. Amazing, amazing achievements that our ancestors couldn't even have dreamed of. They extrapolate from that to science is in good yes. health. Right. Because that's their day-to-day -day experience with science. Yes. It's a great point, Tom. And you just articulated my naive belief I would have held before digging more into this subject, because that seems like a very intuitive idea. Partly because we talk about science and technology and engineering and mathematics as the STEM fields, all just one thing. You know, science is technology is engineering. But when you look into it, that's not the case. There is a large gap, as engineers know in particular, between the scientists and the theoreticians and the practicing engineers. So I, despite saying that I think we're in a dark age, I do think there has been fantastic progress in the domain of engineering. Now, so there's an interesting question. Well, doesn't the credit for engineering success go to the theoreticians? There's scientific breakthroughs in the you know, minds of brilliant theoretical scientists, and then eventually that translates into engineering breakthroughs. And the answer is mm, sort of, sometimes, definitely the best example of this I can think of historically at the top of my head is the atomic bomb. This was an example. Granted, this was almost a century ago now, okay? So put that in context, but you did have people like Albert Einstein and other theoretical physicists work on the Manhattan Project successfully, and they wound up successfully detonating this kind of highly theoretical device. Okay, that was a great success. A lot of credit goes to theoretical physicists for that. That was a long time ago, though. And over the course of history, generally speaking, not just the last century, it appears that engineers are sort of on the forefront of the not only the production of things that work in the world that, you know, cars and automobiles, they can actually push the boundary of theoretical knowledge through empirical discovery. Yeah. Let me give you the perfect example of this that just came up that we talked about last time, AI and large language models. So this is an amazing example where every theoretician that I have come across, all theoretical work that I came across prior to the LLM breakthrough would not have expected, would have very strong predictions that the way they built the large language models was not going to work. It wasn't going to get us to artificial intelligence that was going to have deep limitations to it. Even the engineers themselves said this. The engineers working on ChatGPT have said, we didn't think it was going to work this well. Why? Because of theoretical reasons. But they being 
engineers and more empirically minded tried to do it anyway, and that's how they made the breakthrough. And so now there's going to be a bunch of theoreticians coming after the fact that are going to try to make sense of what's going on with large language models, but it's because the breakthrough was empirical and not theoretical. Okay, that, I'm so glad you said. So you really, I can't get over that you haven't read the Terrence Keeley book because he so affirms what you're saying. Okay. He has a new one coming out where he says he's going to take a lot of what's in the old and bring it, okay. bring it up to date. I'm going to send you the link to our episode because you'll like it. But, but yeah, his yeah. point is that so many of the advances are actually happening by people out there doing practical things. And then yes. sometimes, as, as you're suggesting, they do things that the theory says they can't. So then the theoretical people have to go and retroactively justify what they've just seen. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And I say that as somebody who is all about the theory. I'm fascinated by the theory, but I can see on the historical record, this is the case. It's the empirical breakthrough that comes first and the theory that comes second. Now, one more thing that's interesting about this. So it's very tempting to say, oh, well, what that means is the engineers are the smart people. Engineers have the high IQs. They're just so smart, they have a better method. No, I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's going on is the reason this happens is ultimately because of the complexity problem, but it's because engineers are more connected to real-world feedback than theoreticians. So if you're trying to build something, you're trying to build a, a real airplane, you're going to know, does the thing work or does it not work? If you're trying to theorize about the laws of aerodynamics, it's actually a lot more difficult because you can have incorrect theories that still sort of practically work. There's a, countless examples of this. Like, for example, the Ptolemaic model of the solar system is the one I like to talk about. This was the model which said the Earth is in the center of the solar system and all the heavenly bodies revolve around the Earth. That was a really good model that worked so well, you could literally navigate from one side of the Atlantic Ocean to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean by looking at the stars within this Ptolemaic model. Amazing but it was wrong. It was completely wrong. The theory turned out to be totally incorrect. So you can have bad theories that still sort of work, and it can take a very long time to figure out that your theories are wrong. But this is not the case for the shipbuilder, for example. Did the ship, did the, did the ship you built, did it sink or did it float? So these are people who are just, it's not that they're smarter, it's that they get more immediate real-world feedback than the theoreticians, and so they advance a lot further, a lot faster. Well, in fact, I think there was a point in my interview with Keeley where he said something along the lines of the technology keeps science in check. Because if your airplane way. falls out of the sky, yeah. back to the drawing board. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's a great phrase. I love that. Right. So, so let's go. Now, bearing in mind for any naysayers in the audience that what I'm about to ask of Steve cannot be done. So <laughs> but I'm going to ask it of him anyway, realizing that every single thing he's about to say could be an entire episode of the show. But I just want to give some specific examples what would you say are specific examples of faulty paradigms that have led people down unproductive paths, let's say? So, yeah, I could give more than 100 at this point. There are big ones and there are small ones. So let's start with like a small, easily accessible one. It's called the hot hand fallacy. Have you heard of the hot hand fallacy? No. Okay, oh, you'll love this stuff. This okay. is so rich. This is just, this cracks me up every time I talk about it. Okay. So the hot hand fallacy was an idea that was established in the, somewhere in the 1980s. And it said, there's a phenomenon in sports that people describe as getting the hot hand. So you can imagine the basketball player lands the foul shot, and then he lands another one. He's always in the zone. He's feeling it. 
And so he's, he catches fire is sometimes the way people talk about it. So, wow, he's really, he, he's got the hot hand. He can make, yeah, he can make baskets more than somebody who's experiencing a cold hand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's funny to even think about this. I laugh because it should be said at the, from the beginning here. If you've done sports, you know that the hot hand is a, is a real thing. Getting in the zone is a real thing. In fact, there's a huge amount of, let's say, sports psychology trying to figure out how do I get in the zone? How do I get the hot hand and stay there? Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you can do a sport for a few months, try to learn and experience things in a sport. And already, you know, the hot hand exists. Children know this. Okay. So that doesn't stop a intellectual academic scientist from totally bungling this. So they come up with this idea in the 1980s that the hot hand is a fallacy. It's a cognitive bias. In fact, it doesn't exist at all. It's, a, it's just an illusion. And why did they justify this? Well, of course, math and statistics. What they did, what some researchers did, is they looked at the, uh, I believe it was basketball, the patterns of professional basketball players. It was the Philadelphia 76ers, I think. I, think. I don't want to get too into the details here. It's been a little while. But they said, okay, well, we've, we've statistically analyzed the pattern of these professional basketball players and no such pattern exists of the hot hand. So they conclude, yeah, this is a fallacy. It's just a widespread cognitive bias. This was something that was established so firmly that there was actually academic research to figure out why do lay people still believe in the hot hand now that we have determined statistically with mathematics that no such thing exists. There's literally papers, people trying to figure out how dumb bumpkins could still hold on to this fallacy because they would do research and it would be like 95% of the sports watchers and 95% of the coaching staff, they still believe in this persistent fallacy. This was for multiple decades now, okay? I believe somebody actually won some sort of academic prize for some of their work in psychology and that was including stuff with the high, including the high-end fallacy, okay? Oops, turns out it was the academic researchers that were confused. This paper from the 1980s has been dissected many ways and exploded many different ways. Some of the mistakes that they made is they didn't account for things like defenses adjusting based on somebody getting the hot hand. So for example, if I am making my shot at a 50% rate and then the defense starts double teaming me and I'm still making the shot at a 50% rate, that implies that Maybe I have the hot hand because the defense has adjusted and yet the pattern remains the same. This was too sophisticated for them to include in their analysis, of course. So they were looking at the data and, you know, math doesn't lie. There's a million examples of this. So anyway, people now, 30 years later, just actually in the past decade or, or less, there has been a considerable number of researchers saying, hey, you know what? Why don't we check other sports for evidence of, of whether or not there's a hot hand? Why don't we use more? Why don't we take into account more data and more things like how strategy is strategic adjustments. And let's see if there's a hot hand. And you won't believe it, that turns out there is a hot hand. So for 30 years, these academics were going around saying, oh my gosh, we are the enlightened who know of this fallacy. And yet, if they had done sports for two months, they would have realized that they had their heads shoved you know where. And finally, we have justification where now I think the paradigm around the hothead fallacy is starting to crumble sufficiently to say people realize it was the academics that were confused. That is such a satisfying story, Steve. I can't begin to tell you. <laughs> and, and by the way, I'm not one to talk, but when you say if these academics had only done sports, you know, 
Yeah, I think maybe you've <laughs> right. written the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. So I do love this example too, because it hits at one of the deeper problems that I see come up case after case is a misapplication of mathematics and statistics to domains. So I think a very deep problem. In fact, if I had to say, what is the domain which is in most urgent need of reformulation and new understanding post 20th century? It's in the philosophy of mathematics. And I include in the philosophy of mathematics things like statistics. Because if you look at one of these critical ideas that keeps coming up in academic literature is, for just for example, the p-value of statistical significance. P-value is simply an attempt to try to say this result that we've seen is not likely to be by random chance. Okay, they establish this value at 0.05. And there's considerable evidence to suggest this is arbitrary. In fact, p-values of 0.05 are not rigorous enough to determine meaningful significance. It's sort of a convention that was established that was never given up. And if it's the case, for example, that we got p-values wrong, then it's going to end up being the case that a whole bunch of scientific literature is not so good and not so reliable. And this is one of those reasons why, because p-values are wrong. So there are concepts like this in the philosophy of mathematics and statistics, which are in absolute desperate need of being re-examined because they turn out to be fundamental. These are methodological issues. If we're wrong at our methodology and how science is done, it would be no surprise to say, well, a bunch of science is then is broken. And this is one of the reasons why. Can you take a minute to talk about exactly, I mean, you, you did hit on this before, but I, I want you to have an opportunity to promote this institute. And are, are you going to at some point have a GoFundMe or how are you planning to go about this? Yeah. So a great question. Having a little bit of experience in the nonprofit world has made me realize if at all possible, nonprofits are not the way to go. So I think that there's a lot of problems with funding in nonprofits. Like nonprofits tend to exist for the purpose of existing. Like they exist to raise money so that they continue existing to raise money. There are some exceptions to this. Every once in a while, you find an institute that is actually doing good work and creating value in the world. But most of the time, that's not the case. And people's time is focused on raising donor funds rather than doing the thing that they're trying to do. So I tried to spend a long time sorting out how I want the money to flow for this type of organization. And what I'm going to try to do, I mean, this is the this hasn't been released yet. <laughs> I do have some stuff built out, but nothing public yet. The short explanation is I'm going to try to build it around community subscriptions. So this is the paradigm for a, how a bunch of companies are operating right now. They're shifting to subscription model. And a lot of, obviously, as you know, there's a lot of independent minds out there who are using paid communities as a way to generate revenue. So what I want to try to do is make the Natural Philosophy Institute a community that you can join, not because I'm going to come to you and try to say, hey, you know, here, we're going to do a community fundraiser, like pitch in what you can, but because we can actually create value for each other as a community. And also within the platform that I'm building out, there's going to be opportunities for selling different courses within the platform and monetizing in different ways. And my hope is that the community subscription model will be successful enough where we can take on more ambitious projects. So the, the long-term vision is absurdly ambitious. I, I would be embarrassed to share what I would like to do in 10 years with this if this works. But right now, we're going to try to start slow. And it's going to be a 
private membership where you can see the Dark Age list. Right now I have more than 100 there, but it's not in public. And so the paid members are going to be able to see this list that I'm working with. And as it's going to grow, as I bring other people involved in the project. And then on the public side of things, there's going to be the curated list. So there's going to be, there's a certain set of topics, which I've already done a bunch of research on. And I can say, hey, look, not only is this a rabbit hole, somebody needs to go down. Here's me going down several examples, like the hot hand fallacy, for example. That's going to be the curated stuff. But if you're curious and you want to join this heterodox group, then you can see the list in action. And in fact, the website that I'm working on is very cool in that on the private section, you're going to be able to see the conversations that researchers are having. So I'm going to invite just a handful of people at the beginning to actively research with me. And as we have conversations, sort of like comments, I suppose you could say, you're going to be able to see us do research in real time. If that's something that you think would be valuable, which I think a lot of people would think that's kind of cool. So it's going to be, yeah, that's the very high level explanation for how we're going to try to make the funding model work. Well, how can people stay in touch with you between now and when you have something for them to put some dough into? Yeah, so right now, it's just an email sign-up list. So you can go to natphi.org, N-A-T-P-H-I.org, and you can sign up there. The reason it's, I've been a little slow in releasing this is because I've been working on a book. I'm finishing another book on Bitcoin that's going to be released in just over a month, on March 1st. And so that's taking all my time and my focus right now. But once that's done, I'm going to do a little bit of talking about the book. I want to put, probably in the spring, I'm going to be putting all my focus in the Natural Philosophy Institute. And then if you're signed up on the email list, you'll get all the details. Okay, excellent. So I'll put natphi, so N-A-T-P-H-I dot org. That's it, yep. I'll put that in the description also at tomwoods.com slash 2445. Well, if this doesn't pique people's interest in what you're doing, then I don't know what else I can do, but... I was, I'm just, I'm always thrilled to have a chance to talk to you. And I, I just wrote you out of the blue and said, you know, what are you thinking about lately? And then it's just like, we threw this together and it's like one of my favorite episodes of all time. So, oh, that's very nice, Tom. Thank you so much for your time, Steve, and, and for what you're doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Tom. I appreciate talking to you. It's always fun. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.